What's the first thing you think of when I mention New Orleans? Brass bands, Mardi Gras, that blur of beads and booze, pastel-colored houses and wrought-iron balconies, maybe beignet or a fried oyster pool boy. Well, for lots of people, it's Bourbon Street. I have fallen in love with New Orleans and its people, and I certainly hope we can return to this city sometime. But on Bourbon Street, I thought I was in the middle of hell. It is a stench in the nostrils of God. Billy Graham, 1954. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. And today, the story of a place that looms large in our collective imagination and inspires both disgust and delight. It's also a place that has a surprising past, one I had no idea about. And I live in New Orleans. From the origins of Bourbon Street's debauchery to the infamous green cocktail that is one of its mainstays today, Ryan Fertel is our guide. Bourbon Street, the geographic center of the French Quarter, the heart of the heart of New Orleans, a thoroughfare that ranks as one of the world's most legendary, replicated, and despised. The sidewalks on Bourbon Street from one extremity to the other are in the most wretched state. The bricks are torn up, the gutters sunk, the edging of the walks rotten, and in many places, the walking at night is dangerous. The New Orleans Argus, 1829. Wretched, rotten Bourbon Street, a place you've no doubt visited, but depending on the haze of memory, you might or might not actually remember visiting. Bourbon Street, the street you might hate to love and love to hate. Home, most every night, to mobs of tourists and locals. They arrive seeking jello shots and test tube shots, hurricanes and hand grenades. I plan to have a second, third, fourth, fifth one here. I need to make the most of this trip, so let's be real. Bourbon Street excels at giving the people what they want. People don't come to Bourbon Street to push their intellectual envelope. They come here to take a break from such, from such endeavors. And the reason why this space has succeeded so wildly is that it is willing to provide accessible pleasures for a price to the passing parade, and it makes no apologies for it. This is Richard Campanella a professor of geography at Tulane here in New Orleans and author of A New History of Bourbon Street. Rich gushes over spatial discourses and interface zones. He can read a street corner or a building like an astronomer interpreting the heavens. Here he is describing Lafitte's blacksmith shop at 941 Bourbon, one of the city's oldest surviving structures. It's now, of course, a bar. It is amazing to look at, and one of the things that I love looking at is that almost living, curvaceous texture of the way the tiles of the roof have conformed to the way that hip-shaped, double-pitch roof has settled. It almost has the look of a portion of the back of an alligator. (laughs) So that's Rich. I asked him to discuss the street's history and its culture. It's a Thursday afternoon, a beautiful day for a stroll down Bourbon, bright and brisk, calm, but not quiet. It's nine days into Lent, a period of abstinence and penance that follows the carnival season and the end of Mardi Gras. Years ago, Rich tells me, Bourbon Street was a different sort of place. One of the major findings of the research I did 
was how utterly, shall we say, mundane, prosaic, quotidian, normal Bourbon Street was for roughly the first 160, 170 years of its existence. Bourbon Street was right in the middle of the French Quarter, halfway between the Mississippi River, where the wealthier lived, and the back of town, home to more marginalized folk. And so you had just about every conceivable mix here. You had classes living right next to each other. You had representatives of all three castes of antebellum New Orleans society, free white, free people of color, and then enslaved. So it was a mix of class, the likes of which we don't really see in the city today. People lived on Bourbon Street, as some still do, in houses with gardens, picket fences, what we now associate with suburbia. It was the exact opposite of the family who lent the street its name, the Royal House of Bourbon, France's ruling dynasty for nearly four centuries. But then... This starts to change right after the Civil War when this new sort of social invention came about from England, some say from France, known as the Concert Saloon. What was different about this is that there was kind of sexualized entertainment. Attractive women were hired to bring drinks to the male audience, and they were entertained by can-can dancing and live music. The first venue to offer a taste of Bourbon Street-style entertainment was Henry Wanger's Joint, opened in 1868, just off of Canal Street. Part beer garden, part concert hall, Wanger's showcased music and dancing, booze, and sex. A half century later, and two blocks down the road, modern bourbon was born. That is where Count Arnaud Casanave, a French-born wine merchant who fell in love with New Orleans and opened his restaurant here, decided to expand out into this new invention of the 1920s known as the nightclub. And he positioned it in that location, and he named it Maxime's after the famous Maxime's in Paris. Count Arnaud was a master showman, and self-promoter. He wasn't exactly a count, but adopted that title and all the affectations that came with it. The count opened in 1925 and hired blues singers and jazz orchestras, comedians and dancers. Everyone wanted a table at Maxime's. The social significance of a nightclub is a couple of things. Unlike concert saloons from the 1860s, which were essentially male spaces, these were both gendered. You would be proud to bring your date to a nightclub. It was an elite space. There was a doorman. There was a velvet curtain. You went in and you felt special. Other saloons and supper clubs followed. Maxime's and the rest openly flaunted prohibition laws. Arnaud was often arrested on charges of alcohol possession, sales, and nuisance making. But the Count and Bourbon Street were never, well, down for the Count. And what Rich calls the Nocturnal Entertainment District was born. Then comes World War II. World War II brings tens of millions of war plant workers and troops through the city. They're seeking escapism. Where do they go? They go to this pre-existing cluster of nightclubs and bars and restaurants. And it's no question that those troops in transit rocket Bourbon Street from the somewhat the locally known but otherwise nationally unknown into the fame and infamy that it has today. What came next was Bourbon's golden age the era 
of jazz men Al Hurt and Louis Prima, All black magic has me in a spell. of burlesque dancers like Lily Christine the Cat Girl, and Evangeline the Oyster Girl, who emerged each night from an oversized bivalve and danced with a giant pearl. But not all was golden. This marked the beginning of a seedier bourbon, a street filled with pickpockets and cheap hustlers, indecency, and murder. In the um, late 1960s, when there were crackdowns, vice crackdowns on some of the old style gaudy nightclubs, they closed, they suffered, they started to realize the action was out in the street. So they opened up windows, doorways, and interstitial spaces and sold to-go drinks directly to the outsiders. And this led to the birth of the Go Cup and it blurred the line between private and, and public space. You can hear those blurred lines as we walk down bourbon sidewalks. Music, alcohol, nudity, a passing parade, a slice of the streetscape. So this explains why you see doors thrown open. The last thing they want is to impede that flow of the traffic. The action everyone knows now, the spectators are the spectacle. The action is in the street. The noise pollution and noxious smells, the public misbehavior, the styrofoam and plastic containers that litter the gutters. This is why so many people hate Bourbon Street. But as Bourbon evolved into a walking freak show, it retained many of its cosmopolitan attributes. So we're at the corner of Bourbon and Toulouse, and in 1859 on this corner was built the French Opera House. That's right, Bourbon had an opera house, a grand palace with an 1,800-seat capacity that made New Orleans the nation's first great operatic city. Block by block, Rich leads me down a different Bourbon Street, a more diverse Bourbon Street that often coexisted with the one we know today. Right across the street, is the last visible relic of the second of New Orleans' two Chinatowns. There were Chinese restaurants, including Dan's Oriental and Takey Audi, and the Oriental gift shop where Tennessee Williams bought paper lanterns. The Christ Church, the city's first Protestant church, was built right at the corner of uh, Bourbon and Canal. That church later became a synagogue and adjoining Hebrew school. People might be surprised today to know that there was an order of African-American nuns in a Catholic girls' school right at the absolute dead center, Bourbon and Orleans. Yep, Catholic girls going to school on Bourbon. Then, a few blocks away, beginning in the late 1940s, it's the premier and oldest, shall we say, queer space in the city. Rich points out the former home of the American Regal Brewery, the streetcar named Desire, made famous by Tennessee Williams, which started on bourbon before winding its way down river. A nunnery, a library, a synagogue. It, it had many diverse constituent parts, but it also had it ex, its exclusions. I've scoured every historical photo I could find looking for white only or colored entrance sort of signs on Bourbon Street during its heyday, its so-called golden era. And you really cannot find any. And the reason is it was so thoroughly and rigorously segregated that everyone knew that only whites could go to these clubs. There might have been a gay district of Bourbon and a Chinatown on Bourbon, but that didn't make the street welcoming to all. There's a beguiling paradox here. 
and all of those different elements that that we just mentioned seem to me to legitimize Bourbon Street today. It's genuine, if you want to call it authentic, place in New Orleans culture. This place emerged organically. It was not invented from the top down. It is a product of a curt and crusty cohort of local folks who figured out a clever way to utilize space and to package up the mystique of New Orleans' allegedly libertine and hedonistic past into one accessible place and space. And I think that's very interesting. Coming up, some of the people who make up that crusty cohort of local folks that Rich just mentioned, and the neon green drink that has made Bourbon Street more welcoming than it once was. That's ahead. There's that sponsorship music, and today I want to tell you a story with a guy from Georgia named Chuck Reese. He was working in the corporate world, but had a feeling like he wanted to do something else, too. Something more creative. My then fiance, now wife, and I went to New Orleans for a week back in 2011 and, and had a lot of fun, you know, talking to bartenders and stuff down there. And Just talking to him, though, not, well, not him. No, drinking, too. Definitely drinking. <laughs> but very soon thereafter, saw an article that a big trade magazine called Drinks International ran about the 50 best cocktail bars in the world. And there wasn't a single bar in the American South on there. And I just thought that was dumb. So the original intent of this was to just do a cocktail blog. And because most cocktails have bitters in them, we decided to call it the Bitter Southerner. And then we, when we had that name, we were like, wait, this is like, this isn't just a double entendre, it's like a quadruple entendre. We could have so much fun with this. Like our sibling print journal, also called Gravy, the Bitter Southerner tells stories about the South, the complexity of the region. One new long-form story each week. You can read them at bittersouthener.com. Now back to Ryan Fertel and Bourbon Street. Take a walk down Bourbon most any time of the day, and you'll see legions of drinkers marching up and down the street with foot-long, neon-green, grenade-shaped plastic Collins glasses in hand. This is the Hand Grenade, a mind-blurring cocktail sold at a local chain of bars called the Tropical Isle, where it's marketed as New Orleans's most powerful drink. It is the drink that might immediately come to mind when a Bourbon Street hater spouts something like this. The constant night roar of the kids of Bourbon Street, pierced by rebel yells in the city they call the Big Easy, Swilling Boone's farm, grabbing flesh. The sound of it all, an overwhelming din of screaming crowd, tinkling doubloons, crunching glass, and the rising orgasmic blare of a thousand horns trembling the ancient brick walls in a jubilant apocalypse. Sid Moody, 1972. The hand grenade has been celebrated in rap lyrics and lionized by sometime New Orleanian Nicolas Cage as Dennis Hopper Courage Juice, strong enough to make any writer uneasy. And though the drink just celebrated its 30th anniversary, its roots extend back to Bourbon's Golden Age. Well, you know, in Mississippi at the time, you could get a driver's license at 15. This is Earl Bernhardt. Back then, he was a young boy in Jackson, Mississippi. 
Now he is known as the unofficial mayor of Bourbon Street. Not many people can recall the details of their first time on Bourbon, but Earl sure can. It was the day he got his driver's license, the night he stole the family car. And we said, hey, let's slip off and go to New Orleans. We can get back before Dad gets home, and he'll never know we went. 15 years old and feeling free, that was Earl. Well, the first thing we did was go to Pat O'Brien's and get a hurricane. And by about 3 o'clock that afternoon, I was hugging a light pole. And, of course, I lost my brand-new driver's license for, seems like, I think, six months and just really got in a world of trouble with my dad. But, you know, if I had it to do over again, I'd do it again. It was fun. (laughs) I learned my lesson, Earl told me. A lesson in responsibility, I asked? (laughs) No, 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 he laughed. I knew right then, one day, I had to be down on Bourbon Street running a place. Earl worked for years as a radio disc jockey, but kept his vow to return to New Orleans as a bar owner. His shot came in 1984 at the New Orleans World's Fair. Uh, A friend of mine that was a college roommate uh, happened to be down here visiting with his family, and they said, why don't we get a concession at the World's Fair? And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. And anyway, we ended up getting a daiquiri concession at the fair. Earl took a leave of absence from his broadcasting job and came down in New Orleans to run the daiquiri booth, called the Tropical Paradise. That's where I met uh, my current partner, Pam Fortner. She came to work as a bartender at the fair. We could do strawberry daiquiris, banana daiquiris, margaritas, but only two mixed drinks, either a screwdriver or a Bloody Mary. Pam was from Nashville. She had lived in New Orleans, tending bar for a decade. I had to work in the daytime. I was not fast enough to work at night. There were these 18, 19-year-old bartenders who could pick up blenders and the drink was made. It was incredible. At the fair, Pam and Earl met people from the world over. Six months of spinning, blender-made daiquiris at the tropical paradise. We were right under the monorail at the uh, entrance to the Italian village, right across from the uh, jazz tent. It was really a a good location. People waited in line in the 100-degree weather for up to an hour to get on the monorail. They were riding around for 45 minutes, and then when they got off the monorail, they came out right by a frozen drink concession. It was like built-in success. I think there's a lot of people who remember all this. It was just a fantastic thing for the city. It was the beginning of a resurgence in the city. The 1984 World's Fair, though, was a financial disaster the only World's Fair to declare bankruptcy while still open. It lost over $100 million. But Earl's little piece of paradise beat the numbers. It was one of the top three grossing concessions. He decided to stay in New Orleans. Earl partnered with Pam to lease a space at 738 Toulouse, located not quite on Bourbon, but just steps away. They called it the Tropical Isle. You know, people think just because it's Bourbon Street, if you open up the... uh business is going to flow in, and that's that's not true. You have to have an angle of something to draw the people in. So Earl and Pam decided they had to come up with something. So every Saturday, Friday and Saturday, we'd look toward Bourbon Street, and everybody was carrying a hurricane. And we said, we have got to tap into that market. Earl says that over several weeks, they mixed and stirred, aiming for a recipe to rival the potency and popularity of the hurricane. They agreed on a mix of vodka, grain alcohol, gin, and melon liqueur, served over crushed ice. Pam, to 
tells a different story. When we first started, the drink was the Tropical Itch. The Tropical Itch, an old school tiki punch made with rum and passion fruit and served with a swizzle stick that doubles as back scratcher. So we went to the store to buy the back scratchers. So we were wandering around and we looked and there were toy hand grenades. They were gray, but you know, they're toy. You're in the, the Mardi Gras store where beads are sold. So we said, oh wow, we ought to make up a drink to go with that. And 30 years later, the hand grenade is Bourbon Street's most ubiquitous drink. And though there is no way of measuring this, arguably the city's best selling cocktail. And it all started, at least according to Pam, with a toy hand grenade. But Earl is sticking to his story. Okay, Pam, get Troutsy to give us the last secret ingredient as we invent the hand grenade. Here we go. Hey, we've done it. We invented the hand grenade. That commercial that you just heard plays on local television stations and on a loop in several of the tropical isles. Earl has made dozens of commercials worthy of a half hour of YouTube surfing. He's trademarked the name Hand Grenade, offers a $250 reward for tips to catch offenders, and has taken action against hundreds of bars nationwide. An inflatable Hand Grenade Man dances on the corner of Bourbon and Orleans. When a new trend hits or rebounds, Earl is there. We've come up with a skinny version, which is a low, lower sugar for people on a diet or diabetics or whatever. Of course, diabetics probably shouldn't drink, but I do. I do. <laughs> we even have a hand grenade flavored condom, <laughs> which gets a lot of laughs. People will buy them to take home as a joke. Uh, I don't know how many people actually use them. I don't ask that question. It's kind of embarrassing. So basically, the Tropical Isle covers everything you need for a successful night on Bourbon Street. But does the hand grenade guarantee an authentic New Orleans experience? This is a sugar bomb of a drink, after all, served in a plastic toy cup. And the drink itself, it's kryptonite green and looks completely unhealthy to consume. In fact, the Tropical Isles website strongly suggests that it is unsafe to drink more than a couple hand grenades. This drink is as far from the Sazerac or Ramos Gin Fizz, both well-respected, locally-invented cocktails, as you can possibly get. So I asked Pam and Earl, is Bourbon Street authentic? I can't say Bourbon Street is all New Orleans. It's just part of the whole picture. You know, New Orleans is quite a complicated place and a lot of stuff to see. Bourbon Street is part of the overall New Orleans experience. When I grew up, I didn't know Catholics. I didn't know Jews. I didn't know Irish people. I just, I was mid-America. So in that way, this is a melting pot. People resent Bourbon Street and they shouldn't. It's, you don't have to come here, but it's here if you want to come. And it's just an excitement a nighttime excitement. Pam is right. Take a walk down Bourbon Street most any time of day, and you'll see one of our nation's great democratic spaces. You'll see people of all ages, genders, races, origins, enjoying themselves. Many will be holding hand grenades, sometimes two hand grenades, taking selfies with their hand grenades, doing lascivious things with their hand grenades, drinking this most ludicrous of cocktails on this most vulgar of streets might just be the city's most authentic of rituals. Today's seemingly inauthenticity is tomorrow's authenticity. So why don't we just cut out that transitional phase and realize that this is honest to goodness, real, legitimate part of the New Orleans story today. Sunrise. 
Ryan Fertel is a writer and teacher in New Orleans. His book, Imagining the Creole City, is out now. His first time on Bourbon Street still remains a blur. If you want to know more about the history of Bourbon Street, pick up a copy of Rich Campanella's fascinating book, Bourbon Street, A History. There's a link to it on our website, southernfoodways.org. Thanks to Brett Martin, Pablo Johnson, and Abigail Gullo for the Ken Burnsian readings. Music for this episode was from New Orleans' own Trombone Shorty, King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band, The Louisiana Five, Hugo Contini, Kevin McLeod, Pottington Bear, Tommy Tornado, Vi-Fi, and Louis Prima. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. In just a minute, we'll have a taste of the next episode of Gravy, but first... There's the sponsor's music once again, and what with all this talk about Bourbon Street, I wanted to shine a little light on the work the Southern Foodways Alliance has done, gathering the stories of bartenders from across New Orleans. There's a whole oral history project, dating back to before Hurricane Katrina, that shares the stories of people like Mike Smith, or Big Mike, as he's known to his customers at the Columns Hotel. Behind the bar, Mike's known as an entertainer. Happy birthday to you. You know, yeah. Oh, it's, 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 it's like you got folks coming now from two years ago. Hey, you remember me? You sung that birthday song to me. When I'm like, yeah, yeah, all right. But I got to do it like, yeah, I remember you. You can hear more from Big Mike, and you can become a member to support the SFA gathering these oral histories at southernfoodways.org. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, the French woman who's been combing the streets of metro Atlanta, hunting for culinary adventures for more than 30 years. I go there. <laughs> I go there almost every weekend because they make brain tacos. And they're delicious. Brain tacos and the city's changing demographics. That's next time. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. You are listening to Gravy. And as you go about your daily life, please remember... Make cornbread, not war. <laughs>